0: Change of mood on the streets of Cairo and a pro versus pro confrontation replacing the jubilance of earlier this week. Pro government versus pro democracy. I'm John Hockenberry with Celeste Headley, and this is Wave of Change, explaining and experiencing the push for democracy in Egypt and the Arab world. Welcome to the latest edition of our daily podcast from The Takeaway, our partners, The New York Times and the BBC. Over the next few minutes, we're going to take you there. Where governments are being challenged and people are on the streets, we'll leave you with a better understanding of these events and hear some unmistakable voices along the way, people watching their world change right before their eyes. We begin with a basic recounting of today's events, and most of the events took place right in Tahrir Square in Cairo. We're joined by New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof right there in Tahrir Square in Cairo.
1: Essentially, what we've seen is a crackdown not in the form that we might have expected it as police or soldiers marching in to crush the demonstration, but in terms of uh, thugs being bust in and arriving uh, with weapons ranging from machetes to, um, to straight razors to clubs, and then... Uh, um attacking sort of forcing their way into Tahrir Square and attacking the uh pro democracy protesters and it has uh you know it has worked to some degree i they've uh i think the aims were one to uh terrify the pro democracy protesters and that worked uh they also targeted uh foreign journalists especially camera crews and uh that i think worked to reduce the amount of coverage Um, and they may be also trying to create a pretext for a broader crackdown.
0: And would you say this is spontaneous in any sense or more of a casting call by government forces to uh, deliver a a sort of uh, impromptu militia?
1: There's no way that this is uh, remotely spontaneous. The same thing uh, happened at the same time in Alexandria uh, and in Cairo, and the people also, or these pro-Mubarak thugs, all had exactly the same talking points. Um, for example, they were all uh, busily denouncing uh, al who isn't somebody who is normally you know, at the top of the conversation, but I think Mubarak feels very sensitive to the idea that al should be brought in to form a, a transitional government. So they have the same talking points, the same approach to everything, the same targets, and it all happens at exactly the same time and, you know to me there's no doubt but that this is a uh, move by the president to try to reassert his authority
0: is there any sense that you uh, witnessed the speech uh, that uh, the president gave where he announced that he wouldn't run for reelection anything in the tone of that speech the sense of the language that was used that actually draws a direct line to the events of uh, today in the sense that this is a sign that Uh, the president is actually digging in as opposed to uh, mediating or conceding?
1: Yeah, the opening lines of the President Mubarak's speech last night actually reminded me a little bit of the way the Chinese authorities described the Tiananmen democracy movement when they uh, ordered in troops. President Mubarak said that uh, there were indeed some well meaning people who've been involved, but that they had been manipulated by um by by looters by those who wanted to destroy property, and that you know that that's what governments say when they want to create some kind of a crackdown, likewise, the state media presented the same kind of a picture of uh insecurity and chaos, and that again, I think is the kind of thing that governments do when they're trying to come up with a reason to uh, crush peaceful protesters.
0: Let's conclude with a notion of scale here. Um, There's a demonstration that's called for by the end of the week. So far, it's my impression that this has been thousands of people in terms of the pro-government side versus tens of thousands of people or more in terms of the pro-democracy side. Uh, How big could this get if uh, there's a, a subsequent demonstration on Friday, which has been called for?
1: I just don't know. I mean, it is incredibly hard to predict. But it does strike me that uh, a lot of the pro-democracy people right now are really pretty scared. And you know, there tends to be a lot of brave talk in any democracy movement about people struggling to the death, but usually very firm violence is enough to terrify people and uh, drive them back. Now, I uh, I just don't know what will happen either tomorrow or on Friday, but it is certainly possible that uh, some uh, the thousands of armed thugs uh, can intimidate uh, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of uh, peaceful protesters.
0: What about the lower-level recruits in the army? Is there a sense that their loyalty is solid, or will we see what happened in Romania where uh, uh, you know, lower-level sergeants and corporals left their tanks and joined the people?
1: Well, again, we don't really know. There have been reports that uh, the Interior Ministry uh, wanted to issue live ammunition and order either the police or the soldiers to shoot and that there was resistance to that. You do get the sense that the Army in particular did not want to be drawn into a crackdown, but... You know, at this point, the soldiers have been uh, have to some degree tried to intervene to stop the uh, the attacks by the pro-Mubarak forces. But they haven't tried terribly, terribly hard.
0: Nicholas Kristof there in Cairo. Thanks so much, Nicholas. My pleasure. It's Nicholas Kristof from our partner, The New York Times. He's a columnist and has been in Cairo all week. Now, let's take you into that crowd. Our face in the crowd today is 28 year old Adham Bakri, who spoke with takeaway co-host Celeste Headley as night was beginning to fall. In Cairo, Adam was flooded with feelings about what he's experienced over the past nine days. Feelings he shared. Adam Bakri, our face in the crowd.
2: Adam, you you just you sound tired. I mean, you sound exhausted.
3: I'm really tired. I've I've almost. I mean, on Friday I collapsed because of my my, my lungs just couldn't take the tear gas anymore. You know, my body is extremely exhausted. Every day I've been going down and rallying and moving from place to place, and in some cases running and dodging bullets. And I, and I saw people die because of bullets I saw them take. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous what they're doing to us. 300 people in a week, just like that, just for one man, not to step down. I mean, I, I, I really need to, I really, there's so much facts in my head right now after what I've seen today. I, it was un, I could not imagine. When I, when, I, when I saw on my way to Tahrir, when I saw people rallying pro mubarak I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. This was happening. I don't know what he did. Are they the same to people that he paid and bribed to, to, to vote for the NDP in, in the parliamentary elections in November? I mean, what's going on? I, I, it's like I'm, I'm looking at a different Egypt. I, I can't believe it.
2: Is there some kind of organization among you and other pro-democracy supporters to, to try and eject the Mubarak supporters from Tahrir Square?
3: I am now in a building. I fled with my girlfriend because it was getting way too violent. And we don't know exactly what's happening, but um, I understand where these people are coming from to a certain level. Um, which I, I, tr- I was tr- trying to push, to push the protesters with, my, with me on my side, to push the, the, the guys, the other people, from not from not coming into the square but uh, they they just started using so much violence, and they came in huge numbers, even using horses and camels and weapons. It's it's unbelievable. We really can't can't believe what's happening to us.
2: Adham, you know, uh, what what we're not speaking about here is, I mean, you're planning to go back to Tahrir Square, right?
3: Soon, yeah, until, until, I mean, until we can regroup. I mean, thank God the Internet is back. Hopefully we can regroup again.
2: Well, do you feel that you're putting your life in danger?
3: Yes. I, I mean, I saw people die on Friday. I've seen these people being picked, injured and picked up today and moved to different places. My cousin is away from me. She's in a restaurant, a fast food restaurant in Tahrir Square. And they, they've made it into, like, in a sort, sort of like a first aid area where they're receiving people who are extremely injured.
2: But you still intend to stay in Tahrir Square, even at risk of your life, uh, demanding that Mubarak step down.
3: I mean, my father passed away a couple of years ago, and I have to take care of my mother and my grandmother, and I have a girlfriend, and I can't just put myself... It's enough that I have put myself in the front line. I, know, I don't know if I'm, I'll be prepared to die for, for, for it. I don't think I'm that courageous as other people are, but there are many who are, who are prepared to die.
2: Who are who are prepared to stay in Tahrir Square no matter how much the violence may escalate.
3: Right now, they're all being dispersed. They're all tired, you know, they're all tired from spending the night here and, and protesting yesterday, and yesterday their, their atmosphere was, was jubilant. It was unbelievable. We could have never imagined that this would happen to us today.
2: I'm wondering, is this still something that the rest of the world should continue to watch? Is this still an internal Egyptian conflict? Or is there a moment at which the, 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 the world as a whole will need to step in?
3: The, the Egyptian government now has played all its cards, and this card that they're playing now is their dirtiest card, and it is to polarize the Egyptian people. This is how they believe they can, they can keep Mubarak on his throne and, and keep, stop the protesters from getting their rights. It's unbelievable. It's, it's unimaginable how, how, how they did this.
2: So so perhaps if this is the the last tactic of the Mubarak regime then there you have hope that once this that if this ploy is played and and it doesn't work that Mubarak will step down
3: I'm not sure what will happen now I'm I'm so, I'm so uncertain it's so this week has has been so so fast it's, so many things have happened you know our lives have all changed completely I really don't know what to expect I Yesterday, I was really hopeful that he would step down, you know, but he didn't. He, he, he just tried to calm people down. And in that move for him to calm people down and tell them, okay, I won't reelect myself, I won't do this, but uh, I'll ask of you to, 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 to support me in all this, he actually won a lot of people. I'm so surprised. He's been brainwashing people for 30 years, and he, he succeeded to, to get support.
0: Unimaginable. That's protester and 28-year-old embracing democracy with both fear and hope. That's Adham Bakri, today's face in the crowd. So what are we seeing besides clashes between factions in Cairo and around Egypt? Remember any of these names? Mehdi Bazargan, Sadegh Abzada, Shapur Bakhtiar. Well, probably not. But they're the names of people who took power briefly in Iran during the tumultuous transition between the departure of the Shah in January of 1979 and the arrival of Ayatollah Khomeini scarcely two weeks later. We spoke with Daniel Pipes, director of the Middle East Forum, about whether the transition in Egypt could look anything like Iran back in 1979.
4: It was a period of some weeks between the time that the Shah left and Khomeini returned. And what one saw there was a complete change of regime. Uh, The institutions changed, the ideology changed, the ways of life changed. Uh, The great question in front of us in Egypt is whether that will be replicated or whether the old regime will manage to uh, discard some baggage, such as Hosni Mubarak himself, and continue, or whether it too will be brought down. What is in front of us in Egypt? I don't know, of course, but I'm inclined to think it's more like a coup d'etat than a revolution.
0: And that would argue that it's more like, uh, you know, say Romania, for instance, uh, in 1989, which, uh, you know, replaced Ceausescu, but maintained a a very much dictatorial control over the economy and and the government uh, for many, many years.
4: The ultimate power broker in Egypt is the military. The military staged a coup d'etat revolution called What You Will in 1952 and has ever since been in power. Gamal Abdel Nasser, Anwar Sadat, Husni Mubarak are all men of the military, and the military retains a very large role in public life, uh, economic life included. And is the military determined? Is it is it solid? Is it going to continue, continue to uh, control Egypt or will it uh, give way? That is, I think, the ultimate question. It's not about Hosni Mubarak anymore. It's about the military.
0: You know, the voices in the street that became the Islamic revolution in Iran uh, can be compared with these voices in the street, secular voices in the street, sort of demanding freedoms in uh, Egypt. But before those voices could actually emerge into the government, in Iran, the, the army had to be jettisoned, the bureaucracy had to be jettisoned, huge institutions of long standing in Iran had to be toppled. Are we going to see that process in Egypt?
4: It's certainly possible. The, the leading Islamist force in Egypt are the Muslim brethren, the Muslim Brotherhood who uh, have been repressed almost as long as the military have been in power, since 1954. They have been savoring uh, the moment. Uh, they are t- they have been waiting for a time like this. Uh, surely they're going to make a play for power. Were they to reach power, they would presumably affect a change no less deep than one saw in Iran 30 years ago.
0: You know, Looking back at uh, models, you've uh, talked about the uh, revolution in 1952 in Egypt. We've talked about uh, the Iranian revolution in 1979. Perhaps a more attractive but frightening comparison would be the upheaval that uh, uh, gave Algeria its independence and the struggles and transitions that followed that war. Uh, describe uh, the Algeria situation as being
4: analogous here. Well, Algeria, uh, there was a massive revolt against the French in the 1950s, culminating in the 1962 departure of the French. But I'd be more inclined to look at Algeria in 1991-92, when there was a widespread rejection of the longtime military regime. And in the end, uh, by virtue of some death maneuverings, the old guard, the military, and its allies retained power, and it remains in power until today, 20 years later. That's the alternative to uh, Iran, that uh, they make a certain number of changes and they stay in power. Uh, That's what I'm more likely expecting in in Egypt. Although to push back there,
0: uh, deft maneuvering you describe, but some would say a suppression of a democratic movement that was Islamist uh, and could have taken power, but uh, was pushed back with the tacit sort of help of the United States. It doesn't increase our credibility in Egypt if that's the scenario.
4: It, what you're pointing to is a very deep uh, problem for U.S. foreign policy, which is that we are democratically minded. Democracy has been our career now for, for a century since Woodrow Wilson at uh, the time of World War I. Uh But at the same time, we have a problem with the democratic forces in the Muslim world, which tend to be Islamist. So, yes, this is a conundrum.
0: How well do you think Obama is uh, doing facing this conundrum? He's already established a goal that there needs to be meaningful change and it needs to happen
4: now. So far I get a sense of, of confusion from the Obama administration. Hillary Clinton is on record as saying that she's friends with the Mubaraks. And they, they don't quite know what they're doing. I think it would be well advised for the Obama administration to find what its views are. What I would suggest is, yes, adopt democracy as our goal, but slowly. The great problem of George W. Bush was he wanted it fast. And when you do it fast, the only alternative to the military are the Islamists. And if you do it slow and protracted way, not months, not years, but decades, then I think one has the possibility of a maturation of civil society, which will lead to a favorable outcome for those countries and for ourselves.
0: It's Daniel Pipes, director of the Middle East Forum, helping to explain what we might be seeing in Egypt, call it a transition, call it what you will, over the next coming months. And we want to hear your stories of political transformations. If you were witness to or affected by revolutions in Eastern Europe, in Iran, in Central America, tell us what you remember. Go to our website at thetakeaway.org, share your story and any lessons you might offer the Egyptian people. Now, Daniel Pipes there described the Egyptian army as opaque and critical to the future of Egypt, and that's our takeaway for this podcast. The army is both the political base of Hosni Mubarak, but it's also a potential rival for power. How the army is structured in Egypt may actually hold the answer to how the transition away from President Mubarak may come about. Shibli Telhami now with a crucial organizational chart of the Egyptian army. Telhami is the Anwar Sadat Professor of Peace and Development at the University of Maryland.
5: In the current environment in in Egypt, uh, the military institution is obviously central. But if you had to look at it in terms of the organization, no question that the very top echelons, uh, including Defense Minister Tantawi, including Omar Suleiman, now the vice president who comes out of the military, uh, those are people who are part and parcel of the regime. They're very good friends of Mubarak. They're not going to uh, throw him to the wolves. And then there the, the the middle level have always been professional. These are very well trained. Uh, officers who are, are taught to be very professional, and the rank and file, my assessment is highly sympathetic to the public. They're of the public, and so obviously, in if if there is a confrontation, all of that is going to be tested. If, and particularly uh, if the military institution ends up firing on the crowd in any shape or form, and they don't want to get into that, and not only because they don't want to test the loyalties within the ranks, but they also. Uh, don't want to, you know, sully the reputation uh, among the uh, Egyptian people in preparation for what they know will be a new era, no matter what happens in the next few months. And they want to have a place in that new regime when it develops, and and they don't want to weaken and shake the Egyptian confidence in that institution.
0: So there, from The Takeaway, a conversation with Shibli Telhami, Anwar Sadat Professor of Peace and Development at the University of Maryland. Also, a reminder that if you are having difficulty following the transformative events in the Middle East, you're hardly alone. We'll be following events on The Next Takeaway, along with The New York Times, the BBC, PRI, and our other partners. And join us right here for the next edition of Wave of Change, explaining and experiencing the push for democracy in Egypt and the Arab world. With Celeste Headley, I'm John Huckenberry. Thanks for joining us. And remember, we're always on at thetakeaway.org.